0: Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 10. This is the word of the Lord. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, your sight, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his this name? And has he not come here For this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray for a a minute. God, we thank you for this time and we pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us as we uh, look at this word, that we would be reminded of the things that you want to not only teach us in our minds, but um, your word has power, so we also ask that it would Form our hearts, it would open our spiritual eyes and help us to see the glorious things of who you are. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. All right. So one of the things that we have started to do uh, in some of our meetings, so uh, it's like our council meetings, which are the elders and deacons, uh, and then starting to have these kinds of discussions in small groups. So the Manhattan small group met last week. Is we started to talk about mission and the mission of the church, and more specifically, uh, the mission of our church. Uh, we're starting to have conversations, um, you know, Pastor Fred uh, and I, we we started to have some of these conversations last summer, just kind of thinking about um, the future of the church, and uh, started having these discussions with church council, and now we're starting to have these discussions in our small groups. And um, one of the reasons why we're actually going through the book of Acts is because uh, we want to reflect on not only the early church, but the power of the Holy Spirit and the role of the uh, Holy Spirit in the early church uh, to be in mission, to empower the mission of the early church to make disciples of all nations. Now, the mission of the church is, of course, spiritual in nature uh, because our, quote-unquote, success depends on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. But uh, let me just talk about the mission of the church in an unspiritual way for a minute, okay? Uh, Let me explain why it's important to have a collective sense of mission. Every organization needs a sense of mission because it does guide the kind of choices that we make. Uh, It guides the kind of choices that we should be making. So every local church should probably have a sense of like, you know, who are we trying to serve? What kind of people are we trying to serve? Because uh, the truth of the matter is we, we can't serve everybody in New York, and New York is so big and so vast. Uh, and we're not supposed to be able to necessarily serve everyone, but that's why we need many, many churches, so that many, many churches can serve different kinds of people uh, with different gifts, different capabilities, different hearts, different connections. And so we are now in the process of we're trying to pray through uh, our mission and discuss who can we serve as a church. Throughout COVID and shortly after COVID, I think we were kind of in this mode of like, Let's just get through it, right? Let's just kind of survive. Uh, but now we, we really have to shift from this getting through it mode, and we have to start to be intentional about who can we serve given the makeup of who we are as a congregation. And uh, if you think about, like, what happened during COVID, you know the previous location that we met down on 26, uh, they they went out of business during COVID. So they shut down while we were meeting virtually. And so maybe people didn't notice that we lost that space, uh, but I'm sure uh, when it came time to regather, you did notice we're not meeting back at that space. And we found this place, but there wasn't really that much thought put into this place. It was more of like it was available, and it was for a good price, and we're on like this week-to-week... Um, it's, not, it's not a long-term lease. We, we basically pay like week-to-week, and it was kind of supposed to be like a temporary space. Uh, So we're now thinking, like, what is our next move? Like, what is our next location? And location-wise, that has to connect with a sense of mission. Who are we able to um, serve, right? And, (coughs) you know, as we think about, like, location, that inevitably brings up discussions of our mission. And one of the challenges, I think, of our church is we are very spread out. So we've got people, like, spread out in Manhattan, and we've got a bunch of folks coming in from Brooklyn. And so we're not exactly like a geographically oriented church. Uh, We're meeting in Midtown. I myself live in New Jersey, right? We're spread out and we're kind of meeting in this place. But there's no real purpose of like why we meet here, right? And so uh, as we think about like next location, uh, we have to think about like mission, what is our purpose, and who are we trying to serve? And if we're just kind of meeting here out of convenience without a sense of mission, then we don't really have a, a true purpose as a church. So, uh, what we're gonna do, uh, and I guess some some of these things maybe we'll touch on next week at the congregational meeting. But uh, as a church, I think we're in a season where we really need to be in prayer, and we really need to think about mission, and we really need to think about uh, who are we as a church, and who can we like really serve and begin to shape our decisions and choices around that. Um, One of the major ones being like, where do we meet next? Where do we start to gather as a worshiping body, as a worshiping community? What this passage, I think, allows us to do today, it allows us to reflect on mission, especially as it relates to place. And we started talking about this remarkable conversion experience that Saul had on the way to Damascus. We started looking at this story last week, And if you recall, one of the reasons why Saul, right, who is maybe more popularly known as Paul, one of the reasons he is now going to Damascus, which is probably about like a hundred something miles away from Jerusalem, he's going to Damascus because he wants to find Christians, he wants to bind them up, and he wants to bring them back to Jerusalem before the high priest, basically arrest them, right, as a way of persecution because he saw, hey, uh, I don't want Christianity to be growing and spreading in Jerusalem. And there are these Christians now who have like fled to Damascus. I don't want Christianity to be spreading in Damascus. So let me go chase them down and bring them back. And let's like kind of curb the growth of Christianity right there, right? So he's going and along the way on this road towards Damascus, he hears a voice. And Jesus calls out to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And uh, just kind of as a by the way, That's that's an interesting question that Jesus is asking Saul. He's not saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting my people? Jesus is saying, why are you persecuting me? Which really shows us the kind of solidarity that Jesus has with his people, with the church. Saul ends up losing his sight for three days until uh, this disciple uh, uh, named Ananias also has a, a, a vision or also hears from God. Until Ananias lays hands on him, and then what we're told is something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He regained his sight, and then he was baptized. But let's look at what happened after that. So we're told that he was with his the disciples for days, and then in verse twenty it says this, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And of course, these are the synagogues located in Damascus. Uh, Son of God language is messianic language, and so what Paul is telling these Jewish people in these synagogues is he's saying Jesus was the Christ. Jesus was the Messiah, and of course, that's why he hated Christians in the first place. That was blasphemous for um, somebody to say, and so people, they're they're really amazed at this because they're saying, hey, isn't this the same guy who's creating havoc for people uh, who called on the name of Jesus? Isn't this the same guy whose very mission to be in Damascus in the first place is to come and get these Christians, bind them up, and bring them before the chief priests in a criminal trial. And of course, yes, it is the same person, but the same person had a radical encounter with Jesus, and that changed everything for him. Here's what commentators point out. They point out the irony of Damascus. Damascus was the first place identified as having Christians outside of the land of Israel. And therefore, in order to prevent the spread of what Saul would have considered to be, uh, you know, a cult at the time, he goes to Damascus to stop the spread of Christianity. And the irony of this city of Damascus is that Saul goes in order to prevent the growth of Christianity, but it turns out to be the very first location in which he begins to proclaim the gospel, proclaim that Jesus was truly the Messiah, And this is where I want to make a few reflections as it uh, relates to place. There's two fundamental realities that we all have to deal with that make us finite human beings. And uh, those two realities are we're bound by space and time. Uh, Conversely, God is distinct from us because he is someone who isn't bound by space and time. But we as created beings we are bound by space and time I talked a little bit about it last month when I gave a sermon on waiting and I said you know w- because we live within the confines of time it has big impact on us right having the lack of time affects our mood it affects our behavior it triggers our anxieties the midlife crisis I think is a crisis of time there's this uh, German sociologist who thinks all of these modern problems that we're having uh, like depression and anxiety, is ultimately a time problem. So society is accelerating, and uh, we feel like we can't keep up. So we feel like we're always behind and trying to catch up. But it's kind of like this impossible endeavor because things are moving so fast. And so that kind of creates all kinds of anxiety. But in addition to being limited by time, we are also limited by space. We're physical, material beings, and because of that, we can't be in two places at once. The promise of technology is that uh, we can create these virtual spaces so we can maybe transcend space. We can work remotely, uh, and working remotely, again, is an attempt to transcend space. But I think at the end of the day, um, it's all going to be like kind of a facade. We can pretend that we can transcend space, but the reality is uh, we really can't, right? We're bound by these physical limitations, and place conveys finitude much more than space. So space is kind of like this abstract idea. But when you think about place, place is a little bit more concrete. Place is something that is very significant. Theologically, we can say that God's work of creation is turning space into place. You have this big void in Genesis, and this big void now becomes a place, the Garden of Eden. And in that place, God puts man and woman to cultivate it. And so from the very beginning our relationship to place is connected with this sense of mission, although the mandate in the beginning of Genesis is, of course, different than the mandate uh, for the church today. But the same idea, place connected to what God uh, wants us to do. If you also think about the role of place and what it, the, the role it has in our lives, it does have a, a role in also shaping our sense of identity, right? So if you think about the immigrant experience, part of the reason why it can be so difficult is that it removes you from a place that you once called home and now you're in a place that uh, is like a foreign land to you that is not necessarily your home. So you, because of place and because of being removed from place, you once identified with a people, but now you move a place and now you identify as a sojourner, as a stranger, as somebody maybe who doesn't belong. Uh, I wonder if that's why actually Asian-Americans in particular don't necessarily feel connected to places. Uh, For Asians and Asian-Americans, I think the definition of community uh, tends to be less geographic-oriented, tends to be less rooted in a place, and tends to be based on maybe a sense of cultural identity. Uh, When I was growing up in church, it wasn't unusual for people to drive like 30 minutes and 45 minutes Uh, to get the church, and they would identify community, right, as their church community um, and not as, like, where they lived. So my uncle was an elder. Uh, He lived all the way in a town, down in a town called Marlboro. Marlboro is, like, near Freehold, so it's, like, kind of far, but he served as an elder at a church in Bergen County. (laughs) So he would drive 45 minutes every day, right? Every morning, because he's an elder, so he's got to be at morning prayer. He would drive 45 minutes every morning, go to the church in Bergen County. I guess gas must have been cheaper back then, and tolls were cheaper. I can't imagine somebody doing this today, but that's what he did, right? He would go to morning prayer, drive 45 minutes back, and then he would open his uh, dry cleaners, and, and start his business, and start work. Uh, <clears throat> why wouldn't he just go to a church near his house? Well, because, again, for him, community is not something that was necessarily tied to uh, the place where he lived. And I suspect uh, if we are, if a lot of us are like kind of more of the second generation, our parents were immigrants and we were like a second generation um, people, I I do suspect maybe many of us have also absorbed these conceptions of community because many of us don't seem to have a problem commuting uh, to a place for church because we're mostly all commuting (laughs) here, right? Right? Not only that, but I think the picture gets a little bit more challenging and complicated in urban areas because uh, New York is, uh, tends to be a very transient place and people are moving all the time. So uh, also New Yorkers, not just like immigrant communities or second generation immigrant communities, but New Yorkers in general probably don't necessarily feel as rooted to a place because it, it kind of feels like, you know, people are moving all the time. Now I suspect maybe folks here are less um, in that mode and... You're kind of setting roots now uh, because of uh, children and things like that. But uh, culturally, like New York is a, is a city that moves a lot, right? Not only that, New York is a place where there's not a lot of space. And space starts to get very expensive. And then you start to get confronted by another limitation, which is budget and money. So, uh, as we think about mission and as we think about place, there's a lot, of, a lot of factors going on, right? A sense of identity, a sense of who we can serve, a sense of what community is, uh, a sense of, like, what New York is, a sense of the differences between Manhattan and Brooklyn, uh, a sense of, like, right, all, all these things coming together but related to mission and related to place. And that's why I think I'm so fascinated by this story here. Is something going on today? Is that like a fire? i will wait for it to pass. God, I pray if there's a fire, you protect the people. So that's why I think I'm so fascinated by this story. Uh, The dynamic of Saul in Damascus is, I don't think all that different from the dynamic of somebody who comes to New York. And uh, not in the sense of somebody who comes to New York has like this um, malicious (laughs) perspective towards Christian believers. But what I mean basically is this, right? Just as Saul came to Damascus with a particular mission, I think a lot of people come to New York with their own particular mission, uh, maybe not to curb the growth of Christianity, but uh, the mission has something to do with like you know I want to uh, you know I want to establish a career, I want to grow my career, I want to uh, be a mover and a shaker, and New York is a place to do that, or I want to make more money, or I want to have a an exciting uh, cultural experience, or whatever it is, whatever the reason why people come to New York. If if you are a New York transplant you come to New York with a a certain mission in mind, and usually that mission is not aligned with God's mission for his church. And so people who come to New York, uh, I think, can have a shift in terms of aligning with God's mission for his church if you are a believer. Uh, but the question, I guess, is how does that kind of shift ultimately happen? How do we begin to align ourselves, change our personal sense of mission of what we want to accomplish with our lives from like this individualistic kind of or family-oriented kind of mission to now thinking about the greater mission of how right, our particular mission falls within what God wants to do, within God what, with God's mission, and uh, how do we... Uh, transform that, and I think my answer would be, or I think the answer that we see from the text is, we can't. (laughs) We can't do it. We can't transform that sense of mission ourselves. I don't think we have a strong enough will to be able to generate that, but I think what we see in the life of Saul and in his conversion experiences, I think it can happen when there is a powerful encounter with Jesus. I really don't know any other way uh, we can have a powerful encounter with Jesus um, <clears throat> like as as believers other than to pray, pray together and to maybe either wait for God to stir our affections for Him or uh, through prayer, right, experience God stirring our affections for Him. You know, I once heard somebody say, I think it was uh, Symbala, right, from Brooklyn Tabernacle, and he would say, you can tell how many people uh, in the church love Jesus by the prayer meetings, by how full the prayer meetings are. You see, if Sundays are full, and Brooklyn Tabernacle, I think the Sundays were full, he would say, well, it could be because of the music, and for them, right, people love their music, the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, or if Sundays are full, it could be because they love the preacher or the preaching. Uh, if the small groups are, are full, it could be, well, people love the, the sense of community, and people love the other people. Uh, If you have a meeting with no other purpose than to pray, then there's a good chance that the folks are there because they love to commune with Jesus. But it's not that prayer is uh, necessarily just an expression of our affection of Jesus, but as I said, I think that's also one of the ways in which our affection for Jesus can grow. Um, (coughs) I, I, I really don't think we're strong enough to generate that kind of affection for Jesus within ourselves. I really don't. I think God has to do that. Um, If you think about things that stir your affections uh, now, whether it's like, I don't know, that great restaurant, or whether it's, uh, I don't know, what do people love? Whether it's the Eagles, (laughs) right? Uh, (coughs) Now, you kind of ask yourself, how, how did my affections get stirred? It's not like one day you said, I want to love the eagles. Come on, let me love the eagles, right? It doesn't work like that. There's something that captures your attention that's beautiful about whatever stirs your affection, and you see it, and then you kind of get drawn into it. I don't, I don't think uh, Jesus is any different in the sense that uh, it's not like we're like, okay, let me, let me like, stir my affections. I do think at the end of the day, we just have to have an encounter with Jesus and we have to see how wonderful and how beautiful he is, how worthy he is, so much so that we would be willing to change our the mission that we came with to the mission that God has for us. And so when as we think about mission, I think the, the challenge for us is not, uh, I don't think we're called to bring revival because I don't think that's our job. Uh, I think the challenge for us is, to keep these like embers of faith, right? these tiny like little t- embers of faith, we have to keep it lit. Like, we can't let it blow out. We have to keep it lit with respect to the mission of the church by keeping the embers lit with respect to our affections for Jesus until when God chooses, he pours gasoline on those embers and he <coughs> makes a huge fire, right? I think that's our challenge. <coughs> I am glad uh, many of the folks here have a sense of community, and that's not something uh, we should take for granted. Uh, That's something a lot of people in New York don't have. That's something a lot of uh, believers in New York don't have. Uh, There's plenty of believers in New York who might attend a service on Sundays, but they don't really know anybody else in the service, and therefore there's no genuine connection or relationship to other folks. So the fact that people here know each other, that's a great blessing and we shouldn't take it for granted. And it was many, many years in the making. Uh, the fact that, like, the young ones are here and the young ones know, like, who people are, that's a, that's a great blessing and it's great for, um, you know, it's great for the kids to kind of grow up and feel a sense of, like, this, is, this church is kind of like an extended family, right? Great blessing at the same time. That's not enough. It really isn't. A community without a sense of mission, It ends up becoming some kind of social club. Uh, If that's what we settle for, um, I don't think we'll be around for very long. And I actually don't think New York needs a church that functions like a social club because the truth of the matter is there are better social clubs out there probably. Who do things much better than we do, right? You know what New York needs? Uh, New York needs people like Saul. Not... Saul who would become Paul, the great missionary to the Gentiles. Not 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 that guy. Well yes, that guy, but right. Uh, that's not necessarily what I'm saying. New York need people like Saul who hack Christians who now is in Damascus to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God. The Saul who was filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? We we need those types of congregations because those types of congregations are the ones who are going to have a, a real connection to God's mission for his church. All organizations, okay, uh, so this is again a non-spiritual comment. All organizations, I think, experience what's called mission drift for a variety of reasons. Maybe if you're, you um, if you're part of an organization or in leadership, that's a term you're familiar with, right, mission drift. Mission drift is basically when an organization starts to lose sight of its purpose um, when, and it's very easy actually to drift in mission because a lot of changes can make you drift in mission. If there's too much growth in a short period of time, it it can change the culture of the organization and there's mission drift. Uh, (coughs) If there's not enough growth and there's maybe like a sense of desperation, then that can also lead to mission drift. (laughs) If there's a pandemic, it can lead to mission drift. If uh, people want to settle for the status quo and are kind of like resistant to making the choices and decisions that need to be made because, you know, kind of just fear of like the impact or the changes that could happen, can lead to mission drift. Uh, for me, this has to be a year where we get back on track in terms of our mission, our sense of mission, and very concrete questions. Who, who are we able to serve? Who are we called to serve? It's, it can't be everybody, so when we picture in our mind you know good news church would be a, a great place to serve uh, this kind of person right who does that who does that person look like? who should we be trying to to reach it, it really doesn't matter how small we are, but it does matter whether we are planting seeds or not. Where do we want to plant seeds for the gospel? How do we want to plant those seeds like these are all kind of questions that we we really need to start not only thinking about, but we really need to be praying through, and then we also need to, like, have a sense of, yes, this is where God is leading us, and kind of have answers to, so that we, you know, we shape our church around those things, and not shape it around, like, things that uh, won't rock the boat. Uh, some, I don't know. I don't mind rocking the boat. Sometimes we got to rock the boat, as long as mission is central, not rock the boat for the sake of rocking the boat, as long as mission is central, uh, I hope these are kind of the kind of questions that start to energize us as we, as we look ahead. Uh, we have to um, think about these questions, but as we see in this uh, story with Saul, I also think what's probably of primary importance is we have to start making sure we cultivate our affections for Jesus himself, because without an affection for Christ, uh, if we continue to hold on to the affections uh, of our—I don't know—of our original mission, <laughs> which are again not necessarily bad affections, but they're just not ultimate ones, um, we have to begin to cultivate our affections for Christ. Um, otherwise, I don't—I don't think there's a, a, a sense in even talking about mission at all, <laughs> right? So here's what I want to do. Let's uh. We're a a smaller gathering today, and uh, I think prayer is so important. I know the logistical challenge of getting people to pray together. We're all here together now. Uh, Here's what I want to folks. Maybe if, Peter, if you could, like, play some uh, music. (coughs) Uh, Everybody might be in different places. Hey, I said places. Uh, Headspace. Right, uh, a different place in terms of your own relationship with God. Uh, you could be like super on fire. You could be like very distant. You could be somewhere in between. That's okay. Uh, I hope. I don't know. I hope. I hope the sense that we all have is uh, it's 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 not. Uh, it's not our power that can generate the change. I hope we have that sense. Uh, we went through Second Corinthians, and that was the whole point of Second Corinthians. <laughs> We're weak. <laughs> and when we embrace that weakness, uh, that's when we experience the power of God, right? If you don't feel uh, like your affections for Jesus are, are where they should be, that's why we pray. And we say, God, uh, show yourself to me. God, every time I pray, it feels like I'm talking to myself. But I want to really hear from you and know that you're near. Show yourself to me. Uh, God, every time uh, I open your your word, uh, it's just kind of words and nothing really sinks in. God, I need you to show yourself to me. Let's, uh, let's spend some time asking God to uh, reinvigorate our affections for Christ, to show us the beauty of Jesus through his word as we spend time in praying. I, I do believe if the affections are there, if the encounters are there, a heart for mission will also be there. here's what I'm gonna do (coughs) I'm just gonna give uh, probably a a longer period of time maybe about like 10 minutes or so and uh, I just want you to sit there and pray